The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. We are continuing in our study of 1 John this morning. We finished last week looking at verses 7 and 8 of chapter 5, which in the King James Version read this way. There are three that bear record. In heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree in one. Now, we discussed the textual problem that we see here. The textual the Texas Receptus of 1 John 5, 7-8 contains additional words which are absent from the earliest and best Greek manuscripts. It's certain that the phrase beginning with in heaven in 5.7 through in earth 5.8 is not part of John's original letter and should be omitted. All right, now, these words are not quoted by any of the early church fathers in their doctrinal debates over the Trinity. Now, if you're debating someone over the Trinity and you had these verses in your Bible, don't you think you'd use them? They would have used them, but they didn't have them. Okay, so they're not there, so they didn't use these. For, you say you did, Veronica? Okay. okay, we're using non-existent verses to argue our point. That doesn't make a strong case, people, all right? Listen, not a single Greek manuscript contains the Trinitarian edition before the 14th century. All right, of course, you were born after then, so you can use now, to those who hold to the KJV, they want to argue that we're attacking the doctrine of the Trinity by removing these verses. Well, first of all, we're not removing anything. They're not there. You are adding them. We're not removing them. That's a big difference, okay? And secondly, the biblical doctrine of the Trinity, one God, with three personal manifestations, Father, Son, Spirit, is not affected by the rejection of these verses. In other words, there's plenty of other verses we have, people. We don't need this. So let's talk for a minute about the Trinity, because you know they want to argue that, boy, this is a big deal. And if you take these verses, if you take those out, then we don't have an argument. Well, we do, because there's tons of verses that talk about the Trinity. Let's look at a few. Matthew 28:19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's a Trinitarian formula there. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of the Lord Yeshua the Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Again, Trinitarian. Ephesians 2, 18. For through Him, that's Christ, we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. 1 Peter 1, 2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Yeshua the Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, what I want you to understand here is the Trinity is not just found in Christian theology. The Tanakh taught this same doctrine. All right, Most people think this is an invention of Christianity. We came along and we said, no, we're going to turn God into three, and no, that's not how it works. It's all through the Tanakh. But some try to defend the Trinity from the very first verse in the Bible. And that verse 
the word God is in the plural, and they say, well, that speaks of the Trinity. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God here is the Hebrew word Elohim, which is plural. It's the plural of El. El means, comes from a root meaning might, strength, power. That's the name of God, El. It's used of God. Elohim is plural, but it's what grammarians would call a morphological plural. That clears it up, right? <laughs> Hebrew nouns ending in I-M are plural, but in most cases throughout the Tanakh, their meaning is singular. We know this from Hebrew grammar. Now, Elohim is like the English word deer or sheep. How do you know if deer is singular or plural? Right, by the grammar of the sentence which it's used in, right? Well, in Genesis 1.1, the verb bara, which is our, our word created, identifies Elohim, the subject of the verb, as masculine singular. So God here, in the beginning, God is singular. So they're arguing that this is demonstrating the Trinity. It's not, okay? It's singular here. It's not plural. So we can't use this. If we're going to argue for the Trinity, let's use verses that defend the Trinity, not ones that you know we think defend the Trinity. All right, some Christians will go, well, verse 26 of Genesis 1 definitely talks about the Trinity. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Many take the plurality language here to refer to the Trinity. But who is us and our here? Who's God talking to? This is a reference to God's heavenly supernatural family, His divine counsel. We're all familiar with that by now. From Philo onward, and Philo was a contemporary of Christ, Jewish philosopher. From Philo onward, Jewish commentators generally held that these plurals were used because Yahweh was addressing His divine counsel. Now, the early post-apostolic fathers like Barnabas and Justin Martyr, they saw the plurals as a reference to the Trinity. And I think that's how most Christians see these plurals. But the recent scholars tend to agree with the ancient Jewish opinion. Uh, F.M. Cross notes this. He says, in both Ugaritic and biblical literature, the use of the first person plural is characteristic of address in the divine council. The familiar we has long been recognized as the plural address used by Yahweh in his council. And Erdman's uh, biblical dictionary states, the us in let us make man in our image, refers to the sons of God or lesser gods mentioned elsewhere. Here viewed as a heavenly council centered around the one God. In later usage, these probably would be called angels. Now, as I said earlier, the Trinity is not just found in Christian theology. The Tanakh taught this also, but you've got to look in the right places. So let's go to Isaiah 63. Verses 9 through 14. Now, I've put these verses together so they fit on the screen. I'm not trying to take anything out or hide anything, and I challenge you to just go look, at, you know, look these up in your own Bible, okay? I just wanted you to see everything on the screen. All right, it says, The angel of his presence saved them. In his love and his pity, he redeemed them. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he who put the midst of them his who put in the midst of them his holy spirit the spirit of Yahweh gave them rest so you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name now here we see Yahweh 
We see the angel of His presence, who is the Son, and we see the Holy Spirit. So we have all three members of the Godhead at work here in their superintendence of Israel in the desert. Now if you go to Psalm 78, which is a recounting of this same event in Isaiah 63, notice what it says. How often they rebelled against Him in the wilderness and grieved Him in the desert. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. Now the verbs rebelled and grieved here are used in Isaiah 63.10 of the Holy Spirit and are used here of Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel. Yahweh and the Holy One are one in essence. Now, though the word Trinity is never found in the pages of Scripture, it's a doctrine that is taught throughout the Scripture. Trinity is a word used to express the unity of God subsisting in three distinct persons. It's a word describing the unity of the Godhead as three co-eternal, co-equal persons, each having the same substance, but distinct persons. It's a word that describes a purely revealed doctrine, indiscoverable by reason, but clearly taught in the Scriptures. Now, as Christians, we affirm that there's one eternal being known as Yahweh, yet this one eternal being exists in three individual persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, logically, in our human minds, we cannot entirely understand how one being can exist in three persons. I've heard people try to explain the Trinity. You can't, there's no analogy that's going to fit this, okay? But as Christians, we affirm these things to be true because they're taught in the Bible. The 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, in chapter 2, paragraph 3, states it this way. In this divine and infinite being, there are three subsistences, the Father, the Word, or Son, and the Holy Spirit, of one substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided. The Father is none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son, all infinite, without beginning, therefore but one God, who is not to be divided in nature and being, but distinguished by several peculiar relative properties and personal relations, which doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all our communion with God and comfortable dependence on Him. The Trinity is one of the distinctive doctrines of Christianity. And it's very important because if you take away the Trinity, you take away the deity of Christ, and then you have problems. Now, just because it's hard for our brain to understand doesn't mean that we should pretend it's not there, okay? Matthew tells us that we are to love God with all our mind. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. All right, this Christianity is intellectual, people. That might be hard for some people to understand today. But it's intellectual, okay? We're expected to think through the teachings of Scripture. We're expected to be Bereans and to take what we hear and find out if it's so. Now, as we look to the Scriptures, I see three things that are true about the Trinity. Got to have three, right? It's the Trinity. Number one, the divinity of the Trinity. This is the ultimate question behind the difficulty of accepting and understanding the Trinity. It is ultimately a question of the deity of Christ and the Holy Spirit. The Bible tells us that the Father is God. The Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. The Scripture recognizes the Father as God, and if you look at Paul's letters, he starts almost every one of them by saying, Greetings in the name of God, the Father. 
So we know that the Father is God, and I don't think anybody questions that. But there's also a bunch of verses, tons of verses, in the Tanakh, in the New Testament, that teaches that Yeshua is God. In a prophecy about the coming Messiah, Isaiah calls Him the Mighty God. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government shall be upon His shoulders, His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting, Father, Prince of Peace. You remember the story of Doubting Thomas? Remember what he said when he saw and touched the risen Christ for the first time? What did he say? He says, My Lord and my God. And Yeshua said, Oh, no, no, don't call me God. You know, that's not, no, he didn't correct him. He didn't, he just said, You got it right, Thomas. Remember what happened when John bowed down to the angel? What did the angel say? Get up, don't, don't bow down to me. Yeshua is God. And Thomas called him God. And if he wasn't God, it would have been a good moment to say, Oh, wait a minute. You're misunderstanding me. No, he's saying you got it right. The writer of Hebrews put it this way. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Those who reject the Trinity and the deity of Christ would say, well, Yeshua said the Father was greater than He was, so He can't be God, they can't be equal. John 14, 28. You heard me say to you, Christ is talking. I'm going away. I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now, this phrase has caused a lot of Christological and Trinitarian debate throughout church history. So, let me ask you in the Gospel of John, do we find any teachings that tell us that Yeshua is equal to Yahweh? Okay, you should be standing on your chair screaming right now, okay? (laughs) It's every... We've gone through the Gospel of John. (laughs) Let's get charismatic here, all right? Listen, yes, everywhere in the Gospel of John, it talks about the deity. We've gone over this so many times. And so listen, you get a verse like this and you say, well, he said the Father is greater than I... I guess we've got to throw out all those other verses, right? No. Yeshua also said, I and the Father are one. So by applying the hermeneutical law of the analogy of faith to what has been taught thus far, we know that for the Father is greater than I cannot mean that Yeshua was less than God, as the Arians, the Jehovah Witnesses, and the Unitarians proclaim. So what does He mean by this statement? If Yeshua and the Father are one, how can, he, how can the Father be greater than the Son? Well, what we have to understand here is Yeshua is speaking of Himself in His humanity. He is incarnated at this time, and in a limited capacity, He's a human being. He's not speaking ontologically here, dealing with His essential being, His nature, since He had stated repeatedly He and the Father were one ontologically. He's speaking of the Father's relative glory. Remember when Christ became a man, He laid aside the prerogatives of deity. He laid aside His glory and became a man. And He's saying, the Father's greater than I am. That's what He's saying here. He's talking about His humility on earth. So the Father is God. The Son is God. There's also verses that teach us that the Holy Spirit is God. Remember in Acts 5 when Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit about how much money they gave to the church? 
It's dumb. They didn't have to give anything. Okay? They could have given however much they want. The problem was they gave part and said they gave all. And so what? They died. Wow, that's pretty cool, isn't it? <laughs> Don't you wish that still happened in the church? People lie and they die? <laughs> no. <laughs> Remember what Peter told him. <laughs> We'd be burying a lot of folks, boy. <laughs> no wonder there's cemeteries outside of churches. <laughs> Acts 5, 3 and 4 says, But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? So he lied. And he lied to the Holy Spirit. And to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And he says, well, you lied to the Holy Spirit. And then he says, you lied to God. So guess what? The Holy Spirit is God. All right, so that's clear. We see the deity of the Trinity, we also see the diversity of the Trinity. The members of the Trinity work together, but they don't always do the same things. Look at salvation. The Father, Son, and Spirit, the three persons working together in sovereign wisdom, power, and love to achieve the salvation of the elect. The Father elects. The Son fulfills the Father's will by redeeming. The Spirit executes the purpose of the Father and Son by renewing. Three very different roles, but all with one purpose. Each member of the Trinity contributes something special and unique to our lives. In Romans chapter 8, in verse 28, it says that God works for our good. Verse 34 says that Yeshua prays for our good. Verse 26 says that the Holy Spirit helps us pray for our good. This shows the diversity of the Trinity in our lives. Now, you know, people get confused today and they're like, okay, well, is the Spirit still here? Listen. We have all of God, and all of God is the Trinity, okay? So we don't need to try to separate them up and, you know, they're, they're God. So we've seen the divinity, the diversity, and thirdly, I think we see the intimacy within the Trinity. In John 3.35, says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hands. And in John 14.31, But I do as my Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. So it says the Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father. This tells me that our God is personal, He's intimate, He's a God who exists in relationship. And the beautiful thing is that God wants us to have the same relationship with Him that He has with Himself within the Trinity. So the Bible's very clear that there's one God, eternally existing as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But how do we explain this to people? I don't know. How do you? <laughs> How can you? All right? I mean, let me caution you by saying that there's no way that feeble human beings can know all there is to know about God. We understand that, right? I mean, you can go to my study and you can read every single book on the shelves and you're going to barely scratch the surface of understanding the depth of who God is. Paul put it this way, For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Think about that, people. The next time you're saying, God, why'd you do this? Are you trying to be his counselor? <laughs> because you don't know the mind of God. He doesn't need you as his counselor. Isaiah put it this way. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares Yahweh. 
For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. The bottom line is, it's very hard for a human being to totally comprehend the Trinity. It's too big for us. And all analogies break down. You know, it's just, no, it's not like water. You know, you got ice, you got water, you got steam. You know, there's three things that are one, but that doesn't describe the Trinity, okay? I accept the doctrine of the Trinity, not because I completely understand it, but because I see that it's taught in the Word of God. The Word of God doesn't stop being true just when there's something that we don't completely understand about it. The Word of God is true whether we understand it or not. You know, and I'm, I'm perfectly all right with the fact that there's mysteries and puzzles, there's things in the Bible I don't understand. I'm okay with that. I'm all right. Because, you know, I've got enough on my plate with the things I do understand. And I'm more concerned about doing what I already understand than getting into the depth of trying to figure out the depths of God. All right? Just do what you know. That's, that's what the important thing is, you know? All right, back to our text. Verses 7 of eight and 8 should be read this way. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. These three agree. John's point is that God's threefold witness to His Son, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, are trustworthy. John shows us that these three witnesses all agree, and they're not just the testimony of men, but of God Himself. Now, in verses 9 through 12, John continues to work within that same theme of witness, reflecting the fact that verses 9 through 12 form a subsection of 6 through 12. In verse 9, he says, If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that He has borne concerning His Son. Now, the noun testimony, martyria, and the verb martereo are found a total of 113 times in the New Testament. Of these, 47 are found in the fourth gospel, 17 in the letters of John. That means that more than half of the references in the New Testament to these words are found in the gospel and the letters of John. John uses it more, more than half that's in Scripture, so it's an important theme for John. Now he says, if we receive the testimony of men, it's a first class conditional sentence which is assumed to be true from the author's perspective. We receive men's testimony, don't we? Oftentimes, Without question. And that can be demonstrated by how many false things people believe because they heard it somewhere. Especially from the lamestream media. You hear people believe in all kinds of things that they're not true. Alright? People, we need to be Bereans in every area of life. Okay? Not just applying to the Scripture. If you have that Berean mentality, it should carry off everywhere. And you hear something, well, can you defend that? How do you back that up? Where'd you get that from? We're afraid to ask people those questions. If they're spouting out stuff, ask them for details. Well, tell me where you got it. Give me some references. Let me look this up. Let me dig into it myself. Because there's so much misinformation out there. So when he says, if we receive the testimony of men, a lot of people see that as a general statement, referring to just human testimony. But I think there's a better interpretation here that relates to the context. I think this can be an allusion to the witness of John the Baptist. All right? He's giving testimony at the baptism of Yeshua. And the opponents were quoting this. Okay, The opponents believed that he was the Christ at the baptism. Came by water. They just don't think he was at the cross. All right. Well, in the fourth gospel, Yeshua refers to the Baptist testimony as human testimony. And indicates 
that it's much less important than God's testimony. So he says here, if we receive the testimony of God, the testimony of man, the testimony of God is greater. And then in the Gospel we read this, in 5.33-36, You sent John, and he was born witness to the truth. So here's John, he's being a witness, right? Not that the testimony that I received is from man. Okay, that's what our verse is talking about, testimony of men. But I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. Okay? He goes on, for the words that the Father has given me to accomplish, the works, he says, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So Yeshua says, the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, a man. And our text says, the testimony of God's greater. I don't think any of us would question that God's testimony is greater than a man's, right? But what does he mean by the testimony of God? Well, again, there's arguments here. It may refer to the testimony of the three witnesses mentioned in 5.8. So that the testimony of the three is, in fact, the testimony of God Himself. Another view, though, is that the testimony of God refers to a fourth witness coming in. And now we all have these three, but we also have God. And so it goes back and forth. I think he's pointing backwards to the three and saying, God is supplying this. He is born witness concerning His Son. This is a perfect active indicative which implies an action in the past that has come to a state of culmination and abiding. This refers to God's vocal affirmations at Yeshua's baptism and at the recording or in Scripture, or it could be for both of them. But what we saw in our last study, that Yahweh gave the testimony to His Son at the baptism. Remember, He was baptized and Yahweh said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we saw what that, how that was connected through the Tanakh. This is the Father's way of saying at the baptism, This is my Son, who is the King of the earth. He's going to perform the work of the messianic suffering servant of Yahweh. So the Father was saying, this is the Son of God. So it was at His baptism that Yeshua was inaugurated at the Messiah. When Yeshua died on the cross, did God do anything at that time to give indication that Yeshua was something special maybe? At Yeshua's death, Matthew tells us, that from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land, until the ninth hour. Sixth hour to the ninth hour, that's noon to three o'clock. There's a supernatural darkness. It just gets black. This is a miracle. Alright? Christ is claiming to be the Son of God. They put Him on a cross and everything gets black. And it says, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. You know anything about that curtain? Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that it was a great double veil. Double veil, each measuring 60 feet high. That's a pretty high curtain. 30 feet wide and as thick as a man's hand. It was torn from the top. That's 60 feet up in the air, down to the bottom. Okay, this is, again, a supernatural sign. And it says, and the earth shook. So it gets dark, this temple, this veil is rent, the whole earth is shaking, and it says the rocks were split and tombs were open. 
Again, supernatural. So we got the darkness. We got the veil ripped from top to bottom. The earth begins to shake. The rocks split. The tombs are open. And dead saints come out of the graves. So yeah, Yahweh testifies to Yeshua at His baptism and at His death. But He also testified to Him during His life. We see this in Acts 10.38, how God anointed Yeshua of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with Him. You know, He's doing all these miracles during His life, and the Jews come to the end and they say, let's just kill Him. They liked it when He was feeding them. You know, do another magic trick, feed us. But they saw incredible things, people. People raised from the dead. God was bearing witness. Yahweh gave plenty of testimony that Yeshua was His Son. Verse 10 says, Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he does not believe in the testimony that God has borne concerning His Son. This verse is a parenthesis in the author's argument, which he'll resume when we get back to verse 11. But he says, Whoever believes in the Son of God has testimony in himself. So when you believe that testimony about Christ, as we saw in our study of 5.1, you believe because, why? You've been born of God. It's because He's given you life. You were dead in your sins, but now you're alive in Christ. You become a new creature in Him. And when you believe, you have this inner witness in yourself. The fact that you believe is a testimony that you have the Spirit, because you can't believe without the Spirit. He has to give life, and you can't. You don't have life if you do not you do not believe. The principal role of the Holy Spirit is to testify of things concerning Christ. In John 15:26, Yeshua said, "When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me." So if you don't have the witness of God that brings you to believe in his son, you don't have eternal life. He's trying to make this very clear. Those who believe have life. Those who do not believe, don't. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. God gave you all these testimonies. If you don't believe it, you're calling God a liar. This is another perfect active indicative. Those who reject God's witness about Yeshua, reject God, they make him a liar. Those who reject the testimony of God shows that the Spirit is not in them because they reject instead of believe. Numbers 23.19 says, God is not a man that he should lie. Titus 1.2 says, God who cannot lie. So if you refuse to believe the testimony that God gave about his son, you become guilty of blasphemy. God said, this is who this man is, and you're saying, no, I'm not, I'm not believing that. He says, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. Because he has not believed, it is another perfect active indicative which emphasizes the settled condition of the unregenerate. He's unregenerate because he just doesn't believe that. Now, some people are not accepting the true testimony concerning Yeshua. John has his opponents in view again here. All right? As far as he is concerned, they're the ones who don't believe God's testimony concerning his son. They deny that Yeshua is the Christ come in the flesh, they deny that he came by water and blood. And by so doing, the author says, they make God out to be a liar. This is the fifth time in the letter that the author accuses the opponents of either being liars or making God a liar. Five times. He calls them liars. He says, you're making God a liar. Strong language, huh? We couldn't do that today, right? He couldn't do it today. If he wrote the Bible, he'd have to 
be kinder and gentler, all right? Verse 11 says, This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. This life is in His Son. God gave us eternal life. This is an aorist active indicative. This is important. Get this. Which speaks of a past act or completed act. God gave us eternal life. The letter began with a testimony that the eternal life has been revealed. 1 John 1, 2. Eternal life is defined in John 17, 3 as this. This is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Yeshua, the Christ, whom you have sent. So study the Gospel and the first letter of John in depth, and you'll, find, you'll notice that eternal life is inseparably linked with the person of Yeshua. This verse is the last of nine verses that the Gospel of John records where Yeshua is speaking about eternal life. And without exception, eternal life in the Gospel of John and the other Gospels and the rest of the Bible always refers to eternity in heaven with God. That's eternal life. But Christ is eternal life. Alright? This life is in His Son. The idea of having life in the Son is an important one. In Johannian theology, beginning with John 1.4, in Him was life, and extending to the purpose statement of John 20.31, by believing you may have life in His name. That is the reason the Jews searched the Scripture. They wanted life. Eternal life. They wanted to find eternal life. You want life, you search for it. He says, you search the Scriptures because you think in them you will have eternal life. (coughs) Excuse me. He says, it is they that bear witness of Me. That was the reason the Jews searched the Scriptures. They wanted to find eternal life. He says, you want life, you search the Scriptures, they speak of Me, but you don't want Me. You can't have it that way. Okay? You can't have it that way. He says, this life is in His Son. That is the exclusivity of the Gospel. There's no salvation in any other. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Yeshua said, I'm the way, the only way. The truth, the only truth, the life, the only life. And no one comes to the Father except by Me. God's witness is, this is My Son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear Him. Believe Him. Verse 12, he says, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So who has life? Whoever believes in the Son. If you don't have the Son, you don't have life. And the way you have the Son is by believing in the Son. And this tells us, people, that not everybody has the Son. Whoever has the Son has life, but if you don't have the Son, you don't have life. So there's two different groups here. Some believe, some don't believe. Some have the Son, some don't. That tells me is that yes, universalism is a lie. Okay? Universalism is a teaching that God, through the atonement of Yeshua, will ultimately bring reconciliation between Himself and all people throughout history. This reconciliation, they say, will occur regardless of whether they trusted in or rejected Yeshua as the Savior. That denies the Scripture. Okay? That denies the Scripture. But I'll tell you, this doctrine is pervasive. I see more and more people Buying into this. And let me just say, if you're going to believe in universalism, you have to have an Arminian basis. No Calvinist falls for this, okay? We know that God doesn't love everybody. Okay, that's the problem. You know, Arminians think God loves everybody. And if He does love everybody, it would make sense that He would save everybody. Right? If you love everyone, why would you save some and not others? 
I see universalism as an attack at the, on the gospel. Over and over, the Bible calls upon men to believe on the Lord Yeshua the Christ. But universalism says, you don't need to believe. You'll just be saved anyway, just because God saves everyone. We said this before, but let me try to emphasize it. Just because somebody holds to a correct eschatology does not make them our brother. You understand that? And that's what's happened within preterism. You know, oh, you believe the Lord came? All right, we're all wrapping arms together and singing kumbaya. No, okay? That's not the doctrine of salvation. Much more important than eschatology is soteriology. How is a person saved? And the Bible teaches we are saved by faith. And if someone doesn't believe that, people, they're not our brother. I don't care if their eschatology is right or not. All right? The most important question in the world is the one Yeshua asked His disciples. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Peter's answer, inspired by God, is the only correct one. Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Do you believe this testimony that God has given about His Son? If you believe it, you have eternal life. If you do not believe it, you don't have life and you will perish. Now, I think that's simple, okay? But it seems like a lot of people miss that, alright? Before we close, I want to focus on something that John says in verse 11 and 12 that I think is important here. Alright? He says that God has given us eternal life. And as I said, this is an aorist active indicative It speaks of a past completed act. Verse 12 says, whoever has the Son has life. Both of the hases here, is that correct English? Hases? (laughs) Are in the present active indicative. The subject is performing the action rather than being acted upon. And the degree of contingency here is zero. I.e. reality rather than hypothetical activity is in view. Alright? So let me ask you this. Did John's readers have eternal life? (laughs) I can't get a commitment here. Did John's readers have eternal life? Yes, I got any of (laughs) those. The ones Cheryl's trying to be safe, the ones that believe. That seems to be what he's saying here, right? But Christ seems to contradict that. Look at Mark 10.30. Who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. (laughs) So, what does John mean when he says they'll receive eternal life in the age to come? What's Yeshua mean here when he says that? And if this is true then why did John say God gave us eternal life? Which is it? Did they have have eternal life or was it in the age to come? Yes. Yes. You say, what? That doesn't make any sense. Listen, this is important, people, because people reject, reject Scripture because of contradictions like this that you find. Okay? And I've, I've talked to people who've been thrown out of churches because they're asking questions. Well, this says that, and that says this. And they didn't understand it. They had no clue of why. They just saw the contradictions. And so people can't answer them, so they just say, get out of here. <laughs> Leave, because I don't like diff- dealing with difficult things. What most believers do not understand 
is that we live in a different age than the authors of the New Testament live. Most people don't get that at all. The Bible to them is like the newspaper. They're like, did you just found this thrown at your driveway this morning? You're like, wow, a word from God right now and here. No, that's not. This was delivered as a newspaper 2,000 years ago to real people. Okay? They lived, the writers of the New Testament lived in what the Bible calls the last days. I know, most people think we're in the last days. We're not, okay? The last days are the, not the last days of earth. They're the last days of the old covenant. You know the new covenant is an everlasting covenant? What's that mean? Does an everlasting covenant have last days? How would it? Okay? The last days began at Pentecost or around the time of Christ. I'm not going to fight over that, you know. With the preaching of the gospel of Christ, they ended at A.D. 70 when the Jewish temple was destroyed. Since that time, we live, you and I, all of us, we live in what the Bible calls the age to come. Now, you're reading it and it says the age to come and you think, yeah, that's... No, that's to them age to come. We're in the age to come. It's talking about the new covenant age. Now, if you don't understand the transition period, you're never going to really get a good handle on Scripture because you don't know what time it is. And you need to know what time it is so you know where you're at on this whole timeline, all right? There was a 40-year period from Pentecost to Holocaust, AD 70, which was a time of transition. The new covenant had come into being. The old covenant existed also. They both existed together. The old was fading. The new was growing during that 40 years. All right? The temple was still standing. They're still offering animal sacrifices, but the church is growing. Paul says in Ephesians, you're a, a spiritual house being built up to a habitation of God in the Spirit. So it's growing, one's decreasing. That's happening during that 40-year time. Only during that 40-year time. It was a time of transition from the old to the new. In this transition period, the new covenant had been inaugurated, but it was not consummated. It was a time of already but not yet. That's an important phrase, but the problem with that phrase is writers use it today and think we're still in it. If you're still in the already but not yet, that's a long time. 2,000 years to be in that. No, this already but not yet ended at AD 70. Let me show you this. Ephesians 1.7 In Him, speaking of Christ, we have redemption through His blood, forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Who's the we here? It's Paul and the first century saints. Does it apply to us? Yes, this applies to us, but it's different for them because they're in the transition period and he's telling them, We've been redeemed. We know this is true of us. We have redemption right now in its fullness. They had redemption, but it wasn't in its fullness. This is the already. So you have it. You're redeemed. But notice what he says just a few verses later. And believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Here we see that the Holy Spirit was a guarantee, was a promise of their coming redemption. In other words, they didn't have it yet. It's not yet. Now, the word guarantee here is the Greek word arabon, and it means down payment. It's a word that's used of an engagement ring. In other words, you don't have it yet, but you have a guarantee that you're going to get it. Okay? And that's what he's saying. He says, you were sealed... You don't have it yet, but you're sealed with the Holy Spirit because He's your down payment 
of the inheritance until we acquire it. So we don't have it yet. We see the same argument in Ephesians 4, 4.30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Oh, they were sealed for that day. Again, they were sealed by the Holy Spirit until a future to them day of redemption. Not yet. They don't have it yet. But in Colossians, Paul says, in whom we have redemption already. So which is it? People use these verses to argue against the inspiration of Scripture. Can you see that? I mean, if you're a thinking reader, you catch these things and you're like, what's happening here? Okay? And if, like I said, if you don't understand the transition period, you're going to have some conflicts here. Because they use this. They ask, which is it? Did they have it or were they waiting for it? They see a contradiction because they don't understand the transition period. The already but not yet. They had the promise of it. They had the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of it. But they still waited for the consummation. Redemption was still a hope to them. Until A.D. 70 and the consummation of all things that they were promised, they lived in hope. The transition, the transition generation hoped for righteousness. They hoped for salvation. They hoped for eternal life. Look at Titus 3.7. So that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Let me ask you something. Do you hope for what you have? Not if you're too smart, you don't. I mean, you know, I hope, I hope I get this. You already got it. Well, I still hope I get it. No, you have it. You don't hope for something you have. You enjoy what you have. Not hope for it anymore. They had the hope of eternal life. That's why, you know, non-preterists will so often say to us, where's my hope? Well, they hoped for something they didn't have. We have it, so we're not hoping for it. We don't need that hope. They didn't have it as a present possession. Eternal life was something that was to come, listen, at the second coming in the age to come. So the return of Christ was their blessed hope. Because all that they hoped for was going to be fulfilled when He came. Then they would really have eternal life. wouldn't be promised anymore. It would be a possession. Believers... We've got to understand this or there's going to get confusion in the Bible. We're no longer living in the already but not yet. But I tell you, so many contemporary writers, will you'll hear this phrase over and over because they don't understand. Already but not yet. Well, that's yes, that was true in the transition. It's not true anymore. All right? We are living in the new covenant age in which righteousness dwells. We are not living in an age of hope. We're living in an age of have. Okay? We're living in an age of have. They looked forward to the presence of Christ dwelling with them. Christ dwelling with His church. Oh, I can't wait for that to happen. Well, we got it. Just enjoy it. The righteousness of Christ is ours. Eternal life is ours. Immortality is ours right now. He says, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. They had it in the promised form. That life was in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever is not of the Son of God does not have life. If you believe that testimony that God has given about His Son, eternal life is yours. If you don't believe God's testimony, you will never have life. The difference between having life or perishing is what you believe about Christ. That's the difference. Most people say, well, it depends on how hard you work and what you do and you got to do this and you got... No, it's about what you believe. Yeshua put it this way. 
John 8, 24. I told you that you would die in your sins. Strong language again, huh? For unless you believe that I am, there's no he in the text, that's added. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. What he is saying is that people have to believe this so they don't die in their sins. What is it they have to believe? Well, the conditional clause provides the proper object of faith. He says, if you do not believe that ego ami, I am. What do you think he was saying when he said, I am? Who said I am? Yahweh said, I am that a Moses asked. So what should I tell him? Who said I am who I am? Ahia, Asher, Ahia. Tell him, I sent you. And so he is saying, I am. Unless you believe that I am, you're going to die in your sins. He's saying, I am the self-existent God. There's only one thing that prevents you from dying in your sins and being damned forever, and that's belief that Yeshua is the Christ, the Yahweh. Belief of the truth, people. Nothing more and nothing less is what separates the saved from the damned. It's not about what you do. It's not how hard you work. It's what you believe. That separates the saved because the salvation is a work of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning for the opportunity to look at Your Word. Lord, I thank You for it. I pray You'd give each and every one of us, Lord, the heart of Bereans that we would search the Scripture to see if these things are so. Lord, I pray You'd open people's eyes to the truth of who Your Son is. That they might rejoice in Him. That they might have eternal life. Father, thank You for Your grace to us. May we constantly be honoring You by the way we live. That we would be good and faithful image bearers in all we say and in all we do. Thank You, Lord. Amen. Okay, questions, comments. Oh, i got to tell you this because I was told this by our sound lady this morning. When someone asks a question, she turns the area mic on. So if you're chitter-chattering to someone next to you, it's all picked up on the area mic. So I guess what she's telling me to tell you is be quiet during question and answer. And let, right? Is that what you want me to tell them? And, okay, yes. Be quiet during question and answer. And yes, unless you're asking a question. Okay, because it's all picked up. So, okay, with that said, Cheryl. Okay, the Holy Spirit was to put our for the deposit. In Colossians 127, it says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So, what, what does that mean? <laughs> I'm not sure I understand. I don't either. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Colossians 127 says something like, Christ in you. Right, the hope, hope of glory. glory. So, right. they didn't have that, but they had the Holy Spirit, but it's one. Christ. They, right, they had the Holy Spirit, all right. The indwelling of Christ, that eternal life. Christ is eternal life. He came at at the final thing. Okay, and I know this is difficult because you're like, were these guys stumbling around? No, it was promised to them. They were going to get it. It just until the here's the issue. Until Christ returns. What? We still deal with the Holy Spirit. Then it's not. Wow, I wouldn't have got that out of that. (laughs) Yes, yes, the Holy Spirit. Listen, we we have the Trinity. Okay. We don't need to divide them up. We have the Trinity. They work together. They have one purpose, one goal. Yes, the Holy Spirit, the Son, the Father, they're one. And, you know, one's not going to get mad if you say, well, I I mentioned the Holy Spirit. Oh, you left me out. No. The purpose of the Spirit is to reveal the Son, but now we have all three of them, okay? So His righteousness in us was the hope of glory. 
covering us. Whatever. Right. The righteousness was the hope of glory. That we would receive that righteousness. And listen, some texts in the New Testament say we have this righteousness. Other texts say the hope of righteousness. Okay, so that's again, the already but not yet. You have it, but you hope for it. You don't hope for what you have, so they didn't have it. Clear as mud, right? Anybody <laughs> <laughs> else? <laughs> uh, Gary Cole says, this is a comment. Thanks, Gary. Appreciate you starting out that way. because You know, I'm a little slow. And I, and it, no, it, it really is helpful. All right. He says, we are in the last days. The last days of futurism. <laughs> I, I think that's hopeful, Gary. You know, I think that's hopeful. Uh, you're being optimistic, and I appreciate that. I don't know that that's true, because we're always the minority. I think we are, the remnant has always been a minority. I don't think that people are going to wake up anytime soon, but uh, we, can, we can hope. Uh Bob says there are, many don't realize there were two Yahweh figures in the Old Testament. Yeah, we've been over that many times. Visible and invisible. You know, you talk about like you go to the burning bush situation, you know, and it says Yahweh spoke, and then it says the angel of the Lord was there. And they're like, well, which is it? Is it Yahweh or the angel of the Lord? The answer is yes. Okay. Okay. And see, we see those two figures very clearly. And they knew this. Okay. The Jews had an understanding of the Trinity until the end of the first century. Now, why did they do away with that? Because Christ showed up and said, I'm God, and they didn't like it. So, well, we got to. Our doctrine allows for him. We can't have that. So, we got to change that. So, they changed things. It says, no, one God, no, there's not any about. But they understood these two powers in heaven very clearly. Okay? Yes, Christ wasn't what they wanted, so let's change our doctrine. That's always a good way to fix things, isn't it? Anybody else? Kath, are we doing a closing song? Up to me. I'm not. I'm not singing it. Huh? No. If I got to sing it, that's. Yeah, we're done. <laughs> Amen. Okay, hold on. I got a text from Mike here. Mike Sullivan's. All right, Mike Sullivan says, while most futurists are Christians, the implication of their teaching makes them liars and Yeshua a liar. The sign of the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple pointed to Yeshua coming on the clouds as ancient days. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. Okay, futurists, I'm not going to say, you know, you're not a Christian if you're a futurist because guess what? All of us was futurists at one time, weren't we? Anybody start out as a preterist? No, I sure didn't. Okay. And, you know, I just think they don't understand. But there's some people who, once they hear the truth, they just reject it. And i got a problem with that because I think the Scriptures are very clear. The time statements are clear. Either Christ was telling the truth or He wasn't because He said He was coming soon. So we have to make a choice. And uh, I think it's the choice should be to believe Him. All right? That He came like He said He would. Again, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, but most futurists are looking for a physical return in a physical kingdom set up here on earth, and if they don't get that, they don't want it. Okay? Well, is the, yeah. is, is, is the physical really that much better than the spiritual? That's what they're saying. Okay, the physical is better. No, I take the spiritual any day. Okay? Spiritual is eternal. Physical is temporary. 